Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues, no matter where you are and when you're listening. Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. This is your host, Karen Tate, and um, I want to say Happy New Year. Uh, I hope uh, the holidays were good for you, however that looks, and I hope you're excited about uh, the new year and um, maybe becoming just a little bit closer to your authentic self. You know, as we uh, kind of uh, took the winter time to hopefully go quiet at least a little bit amongst the um, hecticness of the season and uh, sort of took stock uh, in what worked and what didn't work, uh, what we weren't going to try to do again because, gee, it didn't work so well the first time. Uh, maybe that's it at work or in friendships or uh, plans for your business or your passion, whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, the you know, the, we're still in the winter. Uh, it's still dark outside, but we do have the promise of the light returning. And uh, as we do, uh, you know, we're plotting and planning and scheming. Uh, how are we going to be different in 2024? What good things are we going to do for ourselves uh, to make this a good year? So, uh you know, I'm doing the same thing like everybody else, and uh, wow, according to the astrology, I have to say, um, you know, I, I hope the astrologers are right. I'm a Virgo, and it's going to be a good year, I think, for Virgos. So, you know what? Fingers crossed, and uh, I hope things look optimistic for you, too. Well, today, um, you know, it is my guilty pleasure uh, to be chatting with uh, Elizabeth Ashley from across the pond, and uh, she's going to be talking about uh, a topic I really enjoy. Uh, she's going to be talking about the Melissa or the Melissa. We'll see how she pronounces it. Uh, those were the ancient Greek priestesses of the goddess Demeter. And uh, many of you may or may not know, I'm not sure, uh, one of the first books I published was Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. And the reason I got that um, uh, that contract uh, to publish that book was because my husband and I had been fortunate enough to travel to so many sacred sites of goddess around the world. And uh, one of my favorite places was uh, actually going to Greece. And I'll never forget the day that uh, we were in Delphi. And uh, we wanted to collect sacred waters uh, just down the road, off the beaten path, kind of, from where all the tourists were. We found this area where it looked like it had actually been a bathing site. You could see where a rock could be rolled back and forth to, um, you know, to either let water flow or shut water off. And very near there, uh, you know, that ancient um, you know, uh, archaeological site, you know, it wasn't actually a site, it was very small, the, the remains of an archaeological um, uh, site, 
okay, I'll call it site. Um, you know, we had a content, there was actually a contemporary sink uh, with a faucet that had been uh, uh, assembled onto the side of the rock. It was it was bizarre. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, but we got the hint, you know, this is where we could actually get the sacred water. We just had to turn the spigot. And, uh, but there was, but there was a problem. It was flooded. It was flooded by bees. And uh, so here we all were standing there, you know, the group I led that we took there to the sacred sites, and we're all standing there with our water bottles thinking, well, hmm, how are we going to get past the bees? And my husband said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And I have to tell you in, in advance, my husband is kind of an animal wrangler, and this incident then told me he was an in, insect wrangler as well. Because you know what? He took our bottled water, he stuck all of our little bottles into all of his you know, pockets of his travel vest and his travel pants. Uh, he started uh, talking to the bees. You know, he was like he was a bee whisperer. And uh, he slowly approached the sink where the spigots were, and he just kept talking. And you know what? Those bees were buzzing around him, and I'd have been scared to death, but he wasn't. He just kept talking and talking and talking to them, and they let him gather the sacred water uh, without a sting, you know. And I'm telling you, there were thousands of bees there. And, you know, he came back, and we all had our sacred water, and it was just amazing. It was one of those things that uh, I don't think I will ever, ever forget. So uh, anyway, you know, if you are a... uh, you know, if you are a goddess advocate, uh, you, uh, I'm sure, have run across the goddess Demeter and uh, Persephone, and you know a little bit about the Melissae, but uh, I think we're going to learn a lot more today. So I'm so glad you're with us, and um, I hope you stick with us for the hour. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about Elizabeth, and then we're going to jump in, and I'm going to pick her brain and uh, uh, have her tell us everything we can in this hour. And I have a special treat for you, too. I I don't want to forget, so I'm giving a shout-out to Elizabeth here. Um, If it looks like I'm going to forget, Elizabeth, remind me. I am so lucky. Uh, If you know Lane Redman, she wrote the book, When the Drummers Were Women, uh, in the early days of my show, because the show's been on over a decade now. Before she passed, Elizabeth was here on the show several times interviewing with me, and she gave me permission to use a number of her... um, you know, her cuts, her music. And um, uh, I have one called Bee Mantra. And at some point during the show, um, I'm going to go ahead and play it for you. And to be totally honest with you, I forgot what it sounds like. So we're going to be listening to that uh, together, and I'm going to be listening to it with fresh ears. So anyway, um, about Elizabeth Ashley. Elizabeth has over 20 books on sale at Amazon under her pen name, The Secret Healer. Uh, She's the UK director of the National Association for Holistic Aromatherapy. Uh, She's an overseas speaker for the International Federation of Aromatherapists. Her work focuses on understanding the very earliest energetic relationships between certain plants in the human world, right up 
uh, to modern-day scientific evidence of healing botanicals. Uh, she is a practicing Melissa Priestess, a plant and bee shamaness, as well as a bee guardian, and she has the unique perspective of having one foot in our three-dimensional scientific reality with the other dancing in the spiritual realms. And um, you can find her at uh, Linktree, The Secret Healer, and she has a free giveaway uh, blending chart, uh, which is a blending chart to use uh, with her free book which is available to download for free on Amazon so you'll have to go there and look and maybe she'll explain more about that so anyway Elizabeth welcome welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine I'm so happy to be here and I'm so excited to hear that story about Delphi what a beautiful experience did you know that the Oracle of Delphi was a Melissa I don't think I did. Mm. So her name was Melissa Delphis, and yes, she oh. was uh, she was uh, a bee goddess. So how lovely that you got to see the bees there. And I have heard that also there are times that Delphi is closed through the year because of the bees. Uh, and because they're actually making psychoactive honey on plants near nearby, but I've never double checked that. But that's the story that I've heard. So the fact that you wow. say, "Yeah, I've seen the bees too," it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to be honest, Liz, um, you know, I didn't really think. Uh, of Delphi with Demeter. You know, I always associated Demeter and Persephone with Eleusis, and I didn't really associate her so much there, uh, because to be honest with you, and it might just be my foggy memory, I don't remember seeing a temple to her there, but I can't imagine that maybe in the ruins somewhere there wasn't. Well, not all the Melissae were uh, priestesses of uh, Demeter. Um, so the most famous ones are the Eleusinian ones. But also Aphrodite as Eryx, uh, which is in Sicily, she had Melissa priestesses. And also the priestesses of Artemis at Ephesus were also called Melissa. They were Melissa Nomoi. And the whole temple structure, actually, at Ephesus was based on a beehive. And what you find is, when you look at these different priestesses, what they're they're tending to be doing is looking at different aspects of the bees rather than the same thing. So what you see with Demeter is these are worker bees. They're definitely honey bees. And like I say, worker bees and supporting agriculture, of course. Um, But Artemis of Ephesus... um, is more about the solitary bee. She went off on her own into the wilderness, and you, when you look at the book, you can ascertain there is a lot of parallels with how minor bees, for example, are a different type of um, solitary bee. And there was a lot of mining and building and mason bees also associated with Ephesus. Um, there's a belief that bees are able to foretell the future and that the ancients believed that they were the bringers of dreams, but also that they bought the souls of the new 
children into the world and took away the souls of the dead. And so when you see them at um, at Delphi, it's more about the oracular side of the bee rather than the agricultural side of the of what they do. If that makes sense. So yeah, when you yeah. look at the oracular prophecy, yeah. So when you look at the oracular prophecies, we you could there's huge numbers of them still extant, and we talk about how these women were important. Um, prophetesses who advise leaders of state um, and all of that is true but when people have analysed the prophecies in depth a lot more was just ordinary people almost like consulting a medium like we would today of saying I want to talk to my child that died, I want to talk to my father that died, that kind of thing and so it seems to be tapping into this idea that they, these were the psychopomps, the bees were the psychopomps who dealt with the dead. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so, and, uh, and yeah. um, so, uh, so let me ask you a couple things. Now, that's interesting that you said that the bees had different roles. Um, I hadn't ever heard yeah. or thought about that. Um, now, I heard, and I don't know if this is true, so, you know, please correct me if you think this is wrong. I'd heard that one mm-hmm. thing, uh, as goddess advocates, you know, in general, um, one reason we really like the bee and we like the bee with the beehive is because, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, isn't it sort of, uh, I mean, I know they're the male worker bees and there's the female queen, but isn't there something about it being matrilineal or something along those yes. lines? I can't remember exactly. Yeah. Could you could yeah, you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, so when we're looking at the Athenian bees, so these are the um, priestesses of Demeter, really, are the priestesses of um, Eleusis, very much attached to Athens. Athens was ruled as something called the polis. The polis was the city-state. And, yeah, the, the, the militia ruled the city-state, really. So those priestesses were in charge of the agriculture, but all of the sort of feminine aspects. And as you quite rightly say, it is probably the most successful uh, matriarchal society model that you could take a beehive. So in a beehive, you have the queen bee, who is, we think of her normally as being like the top of the train, but actually she is the servant to the hive. She's the goddess, really, that is perpetuating the the lineage through egg-laying. But then you have all of these worker bees. So in winter, you overwinter with 10,000 bees, but by the summertime, you'll have around about 60,000 worker bees, most of them female. About 500 of those will be males. Most, the rest of it will be females. So, yeah. The power of womanhood, most definitely. Wow. Okay. And and um, I did not know about it in that detail. So that uh, that really makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, okay. Well, and so let me ask you. Um, all right. We're calling them the Melissa. 
Melissa, Melissa, uh, Melissa. Um, is that a contemporary thing, or was that the word they actually used then, or is that like a translation or something? Uh, no, they were called the Melissa. They were called Melissa uh, right back in ancient times. How it's said okay. is contentious. Obviously, there's nobody alive anywhere that knows how ancient Greek sounded. So it changes. And even when I'm talking about it, depending on where it sits in a sentence, sometimes I'll say Melissae, sometimes I'll say Melissae, uh, just because it's the way that, that I speak, really. But, um, yeah, they, they were called Melissa right back then. Yeah. So and um, so now you said uh, the one at Delphi. I think if, uh, you said she, her name was Melissa Delphi. Does that mean yeah. they took on the name of the sanctuary or city where they served? Do you think? I don't think we know. Um, so I'm trying to think who said it. To be honest, um, I'm going to say Plutarch, but I don't think that's right. But Melissa Delphis, it was so B of Delphi. Um, and, yeah, maybe they took on the, site, uh, the the name of the sanctuary, but I think it was more about the job role rather than the sanctuary, um, that she was she was a bee. She was a bee. Right. Yeah. So um, aside from they're the Greek priestesses of, of Demeter and I guess Persephone too, um, who, who, uh, who else were the Melissa? Yep, so... Um, as I say, Aphrodite to Eryx, so that's in uh, Sicily. I could only find one mention of them being called Melissa. But um, her fetish was a honeycomb, they were said. And to Eryx, it seems to be emulating the hypersexual queen. So the stories go that um, sailors, who were returning from the Horn of Africa would come round the Horn of Africa and the first thing that they would see as they came round the corner, so to speak, was the Temple of Eryx, which was right on the top of um, a rocky crop, I think something like 1,700 feet above sea level, if I remember rightly. And they would climb up the mountain so that the priestesses could have sexual rights with all the semen and I do love the the, the play on words that it, it was semen she was collecting all the semen just <laughs> as the, the queen bee does that's what she does so she so for anybody who doesn't know the the queen bee has a nuptial thri- uh, flight sometimes she'll have maybe three or four if she doesn't collect enough uh, semen but she'll have the one uh, flight where she'll mate with many many drones who congregate in one place, which is a mystery in itself, which I'll talk about the, de- the con- congregation in a minute. Um, but she, she mates with lots and lots of them, collects loads of sperm into her spermatica, and then she goes into the hive and she doesn't come out again. So then when she's laying eggs, and what's really, this is an interesting part of like the bee priestess sort of idea of the goddess, is she's um, able to give virgin birth. She's parthenogenic. So a drone drone bee is born from an unfertilized egg. And Hmm. um, a worker bee, a female bee, is a fertilized egg. 
But what's really interesting is all of the worker bees are sterile, so they uh, never mate because their job is to forage. Until the queen dies or the queen um, becomes weak and she stops secreting what's called queen pheromone, queen mandible pheromone. And when that happens, suddenly their ovaries turn on and they can lay eggs. But of course, they they are all only going to lay virgin births. They're only going to lay male workers, uh, sorry, male drone bees. And, of course, that's problematic uh, because eventually that will be the end of the hive because there's not enough females. But so this idea of this nuptial flight for Aphrodite is really important. So that's the, that's the queen bee. And then, of course, we have Artemis's um, solitary bees, but also they, the worker bees are chaste, that they're all virgins. Like the um, so the priestesses to Aphrodite are all virgin priestesses, and they serve for a year. Demeters are different; they have lifelong service. I'll talk about that in a minute. But Aphrodite's serve for a year, which is about the length of time a solitary bee will live. It's the life cycle of a solitary bee. Um, so Demeters. Uh, priestesses were all married women with children so in so each goddess had different stipulations for the bees as well so that's interesting so like the artemis they're all chaste but they only serve for a year the length of time of a solitary bee uh the demeter you're quite right they are the priestesses of demeter core so that's demeter and persephone they are married with children and they have lifelong service, sometimes chaste, sometimes not. If they've got a ritual to come up, then they would time, have times of um, chastity. Um, but they will always in their rituals be chaste. So sometimes they would have sort of week-long rituals where they would be chaste. Um, but Aphrodite's priestesses were all highly sexual priestesses. They were the... Um, well, the courtesans, if you like, the, uh, of the time. Right. So, yes. The Herodules. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, did, I did not know either. You've told me so much already today, uh, Liz. Um, I did not know <laughs> that. I mean, I knew about the, you know, the, the, you know, the temples of Aphrodite, you know, where they, you know, performed uh, sacred sex and things like that. Uh, but I yeah. did not know they were considered Melissa. Um, so yeah. it, so it's, you know, well, you wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg. I wonder if the priestesses <laughs> were mimicking the bees or if, you know, they, uh, you know, or, you know what I mean? I, I, and that's how they, uh, I, I don't know, sort of organize themselves. Um, if it was based on the bees, um, is as, as, as strictly as you say, you know, um, it, 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 uh, it, I mean, does that, does from, from what you could find, does it seem like they were really trying to mimic, uh, these, these B functions or was it a, I mean, it couldn't have been a coincidence, huh? No, I think they definitely were because don't, don't forget, these are the bringers of honey, you know, that's liquid gold, isn't it? And what we do know from reading Aristotle is 
publicly nobody knew how do bees, uh, what what sexes are bees, and how do they uh, how do they mate, how do they reproduce? So I think personally, I think that was part of the Ellis in the mysteries that they that they explained their part in agriculture and their part in sexuality, but um. Yeah, certainly it's not written down anywhere, those secrets, that's for sure. Right. Well, and um, and just to address honey being liquid gold, um, I mean, we have to remember, I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, in places like Greece, I mean, they didn't, I don't think they had things like sugar cane. So, uh, so the idea of honey being liquid gold, that was like the ancient sweetener. Is, is that correct? Yep. No, absolutely. And, and, of course, ambrosia nectar. Was ambrosia the food of the gods? We don't know, but it's certainly called ambrosia nectar. They've got an, there's an understanding there that the bees know something about the food of the gods. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, um, all right, so bee shamanism. Um, you, were actually, you actually have like a hive in your backyard or something? Yeah, well, there's an interesting question, actually. So I have four hives in my garden. However, on New Year's Day, all my, di- all my bees died, and I don't know why. So I don't have bees at the moment, but normally I do have colonies of bees, yes. Okay. And so what is bee shamanism? So bee shamanism is attempting to look at life through the eyes of a bee. So understanding that all all life is animate. So when we when we think about like things like Christianity really, Christianity says that there is one God. Shamanism says there are spirits everywhere, in everything. And that each spirit, each entity has something to teach. So I want to know all of the time, what is it that the bee can teach me? And it's my ally through life. So if there are things that I want to know or I want to happen, then I go and talk to the bees about that and ask them to help me to understand. Okay. All right. And um, now can someone do that if they don't have, um, you know, beehives in their backyard? Yeah, definitely. I started off without bees. Um, so what, how I learned, actually, was with a beeswax candle and learning to drop my attention down into my womb space and connect with the energy of the bee through this beeswax candle. And one can imagine that one's talking to the queen bee, um, and explaining that you want to uh, have a relationship with the bees. And that's how the bees ended up turning up and swarming into my garden because I told the queen bee, I want you to arrive. And uh, my son bought me my first swarm, but then two more decided they'd move in. And it is through meditation with the queen bee that you can do that. Wow. Wow, that's pretty impressive. 
Um, you know what? I, I want to take a second here and see um, what Lane Redman's B mantra sounded like because I honestly don't oh, remember. I, I haven't played this. Oh, I, I, I haven't so played this since since the last time she was on the show. So let me see if I can pull that up real quick here. Yep. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. <clears throat> okay, well, I have to do a bit of housekeeping here. Uh, but when we come back, Liz, because um, it's a big subject, um, I would imagine. I mean, not that we can cover it all here today. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the Eleusinian Mysteries. I mean, when we mm-hmm. stop and think about it, um, I think the Eleusinian Mysteries, you know, the Mysteries of Demeter and Persephone, were around for thousands of years. And here it was yep. a religion based on a mother and a daughter, and that is so forgotten today what a Mm -hmm. major religion that was, you know, based on the feminine face of God. So um, I want to come back, uh, you know, and get to that as soon as uh, folks hear from Joe Carson. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful, and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast, and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. This is Karen Tate, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and uh, I am uh, having a delightful conversation with Elizabeth Ashley, uh, and uh, she's written the book, The Melissae, uh, Ancient Greek Priestesses of uh, the Goddess Demeter. And um, we were just about to jump into the Eleusinian Mysteries. So, uh, Elizabeth, um, what do you think is important for us to know about those? <laughs> that you go into a black hole and you never come out when you study them. <laughs> they are, yeah. I think the most important. You hit on the most important points. We we think about them as the you know this thing in the distant past, but <clears throat> they were taking place for a longer time that, than Christianity has existed. For around about four thousand years, there's evidence that these mysteries took place. It was a nine-day festival, as you quite rightly say, of Demeter and the Kore, which is the name of the maiden who became Persephone. And they took place in September. 
the month of Bodromian. And so quite often when people talk about them, they talk about the return of Persephone, which cannot be true because that is when she was going back down into the ground for winter. And it took, in, it took place around about the time that they were sowing the barley for the next year. Um, and so the story is that the maiden, the Kore, was in the meadow. And the ground opened up and she was stolen away by the man that was her uncle, actually, Hades. He took her down into the, um, the underworld. And her, her mother had no idea where she'd gone, but the, um, the goddess Hecate had heard her screaming and advised that she should speak to Helios, who is the god of the sun, who sees everything that mortals and that gods do. And he said, well, yes, this has come about because... He wanted to get married to um, to the Kore, but Zeus knew that he would have nothing of it, so Zeus allowed it to happen. But she didn't know where she could find her, so she set off around the world, searching everywhere, and she took off her godly her goddess uh, robes and disguised herself as an old lady and called herself Doso. And she comes upon the town of Eleusis where there is a well. She sits down by the side of the well and she is bereft, um, completely battered by this awful thing that's happened, that her daughter's been abducted. And she is discovered by three women who, it turns out, are the daughters of the king. Um, and they hear her story and their heart goes out to her. So they go home and they say to their mother, who is the queen, Metanera, please can we bring this woman home? This awful thing's happened to her. We want to look after her. And the queen says, yes, that, that works. We can do that. So she, they take her to the palace and she sits down, but she is miserable. They can't get her out of this depression for uh, a long, long time. And then the housemaid decides she'll try and make her laugh. So she does that, we think, by showing her her genitals. Um, and we think that maybe the housemaid was uh, a hermaphrodite or perhaps intersex based on the statues, the votive offerings that are uh, left from her, which does make her laugh. And she starts to come out of this depression. And Matanera, the queen, is impressed by her. And she says, you know what? I need a nurse made for my young son. And so she agrees to look after this son. However, she is besotted by this son and she wants to do something lovely for the family to repay them. So she tries to make the son immortal by lying him in the flames of the fire each night. And then obviously over time, her luck runs out with that and Matanera walks into the nursery and sees her with this child in the flames and has a temper at her. Complete tantrum. So Demeter has no choice. She has to expose who she is and she takes off the old lady's robes and says, do you not know who I am? And you must 
establish a, uh, a temple for me, which they do. Um, but she sits in the temple and she is just depressed because her daughter's not come back. So what she decides she's going to do is to punish the gods by withdrawing all her fertility. So this is probably the main crux of what is happening. She withdraws her fertility from the ground and so nothing will grow. And Dew says, well, that's a bit rubbish because if nothing will grow, nobody can sacrifice anything to me. And if nobody can sacrifice anything to the gods, then the gods will die. We need to sort this out. So he goes to Hades and says, we need to sort this out. You can't carry on with this. And he says, well, okay, I will let her go back. But the thing is, the fates have already put in a rule that if somebody eats something while they're down in the underworld, then it ties them to it. So she, he tricks her into eating four seeds from a pomegranate, which probably equate to the four months that she's underground. So she is allowed to go back to, uh, to Earth, to the human world, back to see her mother, to the goddess, for the rest of the year, which is eight months, but for the four months she must return to pay the debt of the pomegranate seeds. Um, and so when she comes back, obviously Demeter's over, oh, overjoyed to see her, and she says, right, in thanks for that, for looking after me, then I will teach you the secrets of agriculture, and you can go out and you can teach them to the rest of the world. And so the um, mysteries of Eleusis are established. As I say, they are worshipped for around about 4,000 years. Clearly have something to do with agriculture. We are told uh, by the, uh, the early um, Christian writers, but also the ancient Greek writers, that the priestesses who presided over this were called Melissa, who were bees. But we have no proof that at that time they understood a bee's part in um, in agriculture at all. They did, uh, that um, they understood pollination, or indeed that they understood reproduction even. So it's very interesting right. to see how it lays over each other. Yeah, yeah, and you know, um, also too, I don't know if you're familiar with Carl Ruck, um, but uh, he's written a lot on the Eleusinian mysteries, and he's done research on the sacred hallucinogens, and mm-hmm. um, I think there's some theories, um, you know, I mean, there's so much to be said about this stuff, um, and I appreciate you shared that myth, uh, but he was talking, you know, he was focused on the hallucinogens, and I believe yeah. he Thinks they were uh, imbibing mushrooms, and maybe mm-hmm. we don't know because people were sworn to secrecy, uh, you know, about what happened at these rituals. But uh, he suspects, I think, um, or or maybe I, I don't know if he's just telling the tale or he if this is his own research. But uh, perhaps what people saw after they've imbibed these mushrooms was maybe um, or or they were coaxed into thinking they were seeing somehow, um, uh, you know, Persephone returned from the underworld. Uh, because we know, um, you know, the Greeks were really masters of 
um, you know, kind of, I hate to say fooling people during ritual, but they had statues that they could get inside that, you know, that they could make it sound like the statue was speaking to people. Um, you know, it was sort of ancient robotics and things like that, that they could make people, you know, kind of see as if the statues were coming alive. Um, so I don't, I don't know, you know, uh, but I wonder, have you run across anything like that at all? Yeah, so that's uh, so the mushrooms is quite a well-known um, theory. So we do we, we don't know, which you quite rightly said, we don't know what had happened because people were uh, sworn to a vow of secrecy, and actually uh, it was a death penalty for revealing um, what happened. However. There was a gentleman who actually parodied it at um, a dinner party. And the stories of how the, the priestesses and the priests uh, shook their purple cloaks at him in disgust and he was banished um, from it. But we know that, that people went through the initiation because they wanted to have a better experience of this life and the next. And there's enough written by Christian writers, usually deriding it, for us to know that they had some kind of vision of the afterlife and the meadow um, somewhere along the line. But we don't know how it happened. As you quite rightly say, there is a theory that it was psilocybin mushrooms. There is also another theory that, given that the, the barley fields, the Rarian fields they're called, were very sacred. There is um, um, a fungus that grows on barley when it rots a little called ergot, and that it, um, creates like an LSD experience. There is another theory that uh, people were drinking pennyroyal, but I personally think that couldn't possibly be true because 3,000 people and some of them being pregnant, there would be miscarriages and I, that just can't be true. That, so, but I, I quite like the idea of the um, the ergot. I also quite like the idea that it's hallucinogenic hoodie. I don't understand why nobody proposes that. I would have thought that was an obvious um, choice as well. Um, but yeah, they, it's believed that they saw something. There is a part of the ritual where they go out and with torches and call out for her um so i think in some way they must have been able to see her coming back some way along the line um okay what's interesting you talk about the statues and i think that that's an interesting point to raise so people when they're thinking about ancient greek statues perceive them as being white that they're lime um you know limestone and that they're beautiful and white although we know that they were definitely painted in bright colours. Um, and so if you consider that they were inside of a, a temple with torchlight and flickering candles, yeah, whether they saw them talk, I don't know, but you can definitely imagine that the gods were among you, I think. You could definitely freak yourself yeah. out that way. <laughs> Especially if you've maybe had some sacred hallucinogens too, you know. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, what I yeah. wouldn't give to have an ancient time machine, right, Liz, and go no, back and yeah, just absolutely. be a fly on the yeah. wall and and watch watch definitely. all of this. Um, yes, well, you know, one of the other say, things. Well, a bee. It'd be a bee. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a bee. Yeah, bee on the wall. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Um, you know, the other thing um, I was thinking about when I was researching sacred sites for my book, um, one of the things I stumbled across was people would, um, uh, they would, they would, you know, as they're offering for the temple, they would get little piglets that they would then uh, go bathe in the river with, you know, to wash and purify themselves in the little piglet and then bring it to the temple. Did you run across anything like that? Yes, yes, yes. The mystic pig may have been my favorite part of the whole thing, to be honest. So, as I say, it's a nine-day festival. So, but the, it began with a very long procession from Athens, from Necropolis, to Eleusis, which was uh, 14 miles down the Sacred Way. And all the way, all the way along it, they would be stopping at sacred sites to uh, sing songs and um, to offer libations and sacrifices, and there was ding dancing, and we know that they were... Lots of songs and everyone was piping. But on the, if I remember rightly, the third day of, um, as they're going along this 14 miles, they stopped at the sea. Now, we should say here that we're talking not a small number of people. We're talking about around about 3,000 people. And everybody had to take their mystic pig. And they would take it into the, the sea with them. And they had to cleanse this mystic pig and cleanse themselves. So you can imagine the uproar of these squealing pigs and everybody squealing with it. And there's a couple of writers who say that there was such mayhem that um, sharks came. And a person actually got killed by the sharks being attracted by the, um, the pigs. And then on the evening, there was a grand feast and all of these these uh, pigs were sacrificed and eaten. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much about Demeter and Persephone. I mean, uh, didn't they even have their own Olympic Games as well? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but the high priestess of uh, Demeter, who is obviously a Melissa, she had pride of place at the Olympic Games, so she had many sort of um, big status things. So any kind of theatre event, the best seat in the house was reserved for the for the priestess of Demeter. So this Melissa would always be at the theatre, always wearing purple. She had to wear purple, and nobody else was allowed to wear purple. And yeah, and she had the pride of place. She had the most important seat in the Olympic Games. Yeah. Do we have any idea how the women were chosen uh, for uh, to be a priestess? Was it, you know, the rich people, or um, you know, what do we yes, know? Yes, definitely was rich. Yes, you do. Yes. So different cults had different ways of doing things, and bear in mind that. 
we are talking about a long period of time, so things changed as well. So we can't say this is how it happened in ancient Greece because it altered over time. But the priestesses of um, Demeter Core, which are the Melissae that we're talking about now, all came from a tribe called the Etubotabe tribe. So this was a, a priestly class, and they were very rich, and it came down through family. Um, but others, there were sort of later on through time, the, we know that it was, an, well, so let's explain that. When you see a Greek temple, if it was dedicated to a goddess, then it had been paid for by women. The priestesses paid for those to be built through money that was paid to them through tributes for sacrifices, but also they, they were women of, of money anyway. They were born into money, and then they married into money to uh, establish um, this pot of money. And they were in service to their community. They built loads of, loads of different things, like market halls, temples, all manner of different things. So it was a very costly endeavor to be a, a, a high-ranking priestess. And the Melissa was like the second highest ranking. The priestess of Athena, Pelias, which is at Athens, obviously, on the Acropolis, she was the highest, but then the Melissa came late, uh, afterwards. So it was a really costly endeavor. And people, of course, sooner sometimes fell in on hard times. And so you could sell your priestesshood, and people could you could buy a priestesshood, but it was a bit like I don't know whether this will translate in other countries, but you can buy being a lord or a lady in England and Scotland, but it doesn't necessarily mean you've got a house a, 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 a house a seat in the House of Commons. You know, it's very nouveau riche, and it was kind of right. down on like that. But and and in the other. Um, uh, cults also they cast they simply cast lots and people and, and uh, people uh, voted for who they wanted the priestess but for the Melissa it was it was a birthright. I see. Well, interesting. So, um, how um, well did you uh, in you know engage in like years of research for all of this, um, Liz? It took me four years. Okay. And um, was there a lot of written evidence for all of this? Um, there was. and it, But it was hard to find it. And so there is um, a, a lot of the work about the priestesses as a, like a, a class in their own right has been done really well by a, a professor called Joan Breton Connolly. And she had done a lot of the groundwork on what is a priestess and how do we find them? So she'd been able to identify 150 different priestesses from ancient Greece through epitaphs, through writing. So that's the starting point. But um, also lots of work's been done on the Eleusinian Mysteries. So it was just a matter really of putting things together, but nothing really fell into place of what are they doing until I learned to be a beekeeper. Once I started to understand, oh, that's what's happening in the hive, I can see that in the ritual. And that hadn't been written before. 
Well, and you know, I had a friend in Los Angeles. Uh, she actually wrote, I think, the book, The Mysteries of Demeter. Uh, her name, her last name was Reef. And um, she actually grew wheat in her backyard and went through that yearly cycle, and, which coincided yep. with a lot of the Demeter and Persephone rituals. And that was eye-opening for her as well, actually, you yeah, know, definitely. watching the, the, the the cycle of the growth. Um, well, uh, th- this is this has been fascinating, Liz. Um, but you know, uh, you know, what can the Melissa teach us for today? I mean, we, I love history and, myth- and mythology, but it, can we uh, say how this is relevant for us now in 2024? I think they've never been more relevant, to be honest with you, Karen. I mean, if you think about Bees are endangered. That's the first thing that we that we start to really look and think about bees and bring bees into our awareness. That's really important. That the women's empowerment movement is really important, and and the fact that there's so many people now looking at ancient Greek and other cultures. And saying, wait a minute, we've just completely erased women out of this. This history's been written by men. Looking at the women's movement and seeing that it's history that's written them out. They weren't written out at the time, definitely. Um, But also, I think that feminism itself has been quite crushed at the moment. Especially, you know... This idea that the queen bee can decide if she wants to have a fertilised egg or not at a time when we're being told about reproductive rights, that's an interesting discussion in its own right. There's a lot to think about there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, without a doubt. And I'm glad for you, um, you know, making those connections because, you know, so many people think, oh, you know, I I heard about, you know, uh, Greek mythology when I was in grade school. What's it got to do with me? And, um, you know, all of this really does have a lot to do with us, you know, especially when we, uh, when we start to delve deeper and it teaches us that uh, there was a time when, you know, we didn't all live under patriarchy, you know, that we didn't have mm-hmm. the boot of men on our neck. And, uh, you know, women had prominent places in society making decisions. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I can't help but think that if we're to survive, um, you know, things are going to have to change. And, you know, and that's, and honestly, that's not to say I'm not one of these people that think, you know, make sweeping generalizations that women are going to save the world. I mean, I know some evil women, uh, and but I also know some good men. So I really think it's like the values of the sacred feminine, you know, so it's a mindset, you know, and I think uh, some of these ancient religions and these cults that had these different ideas um, that, you know, we don't appreciate today, we can't even imagine today, because we've been living under the yoke of patriarchy for so long. Mm-hmm. And I think also it has a lot to, to, to speak to the illogical mind. You know, these were prophetesses. These were priestesses, and they were involved in mysticism. And while they were not decision makers, we should be clear that they were not decision makers. They didn't have political sway. They were political advisors. You know, the the people in who made the changes. 
they listened to these women and these women were purely working on intuition and so I think that is an important aspect to think about as well you know we've completely tried to eradicate that part of a woman's you know ways of being and it was yeah it seems to have been much more important in times gone by yeah, yeah, that whole right brain idea. And, you yeah. know, I'll just mention to you and to the listeners, um, a while back I had a guy on the show by the name of David Hillman, and he was a pharmacologist, and he was actually able to translate his own Greek and not rely on Christian translations. And he firmly believes that Greek women were more powerful than we think because of the translations he was able to make himself, you know, not relying on patriarchal Christian translations. And he said that, you know, these women held life and death in their hands as far, you know, Mm -hmm. they were like the ancient pharmacologists, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, if anyone wants to look up David Hillman, he's a controversial figure, but he's brilliant. Um, And, um, Anyway, uh, you know, that, an, another resource out there if you're really kind of into this stuff. Um, well, um, Liz, um, you know, I want to give you the last word here. Uh, is there anything maybe I haven't thought uh, to ask you? Uh, I mean, like where to find your books at least. Um, you know, what haven't I thought to ask you you want to close with today? Well, you did a great job of asking tremendous questions. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself, Karen. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so the book is called Meeting Demilice, and they are the ancient Greek bee priestesses of Demeter, and you can find it anywhere that sells books. And I, I would love it if people had a look or uh, and contacted me about it and, and asked me questions, because I, I can talk about it forever. <laughs> Well, and thank you for correcting me, Um, and this will give us a chance to say the title again, because I confused the title of your book. As you just said, the title is actually Meeting the Melissa, Ancient Bee Priestesses of Demeter, uh, because the name of the show was a little bit different. Uh, So it's Meeting the Mm -hmm. Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-E, A-E. So, um, and do you have a website, Yeah, so the best place to go to get me is to go to linktree forward slash the secret healer or you can go to www.thesecrethealer.co.uk. Okay. Well, Liz, thank you so much. Um, I I really appreciate uh, the chat today, and um, you know, let's uh, let's let's stay in touch. I'd actually love to talk to you more about some of those Greek myths at some point. I would love it. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. Okay. Uh, Well, I will be right back with you, uh, my dear listeners, in just a moment. So please, uh, don't go away. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian high priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Ferraferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s and through the years only found snippets of information on Teleferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background 
philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Ferrofaria's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Ferrotheria. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality, hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Ferrotheria website at ferrotheria.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. So I want to tell you what's coming up here on the show. Uh, And, of course, thank you for your listener loyalty. Um, Next week, uh, I have with me Dale Allen. Uh, She's been around the... the goddess community for quite a while around 25 years and she has a one-woman show out there called in our right minds and uh, we're going to be talking about that and uh, her work in the world so I think you will definitely uh, enjoy that and uh, the following week um, I'm going to be with myself actually (laughs) i'm going to be talking to you about dreams and uh, dreaming and inspiration and about the sleeping goddess of malta uh, that was found in the hypogeum so uh, and we're going to include uh, a meditation that day that uh, um, you know sort of incorporates uh, the the talk i'm going to give uh, to you and then the last wednesday of the month uh, mayor cromwell is uh, is with me, and um, our topic that day is weaving a global divine feminine field of healing. Um, and uh, Mayor and I are actually doing a national webinar on the 25th of January, uh, and it's uh, a conversation we're going to have about what is goddess spirituality. And if that's something you'd like to tune into, uh, please email me at. Um, uh, Karen Tate 108 at yahoo.com I can give you more information or uh, you can find some posts about it on either my Karen Tate Facebook page or my Karen Tate author Facebook page um, you can register with Eventbrite there will be a link there or I can send it to you if you email me and uh, you know we're going to be talking about the sacred feminine uh, from the aspect of uh, goddess as uh, deity, archetype, ideal, um, you know, what is the uh, mysticism uh, and the right brain stuff of uh, goddess spirituality. So I think uh, you'll potentially gain a lot from that conversation, whether this is something new to you or you've been doing it for a while. Um, you know, Mayor and I come at this from two totally different spectrums, but, uh, you know, but we meet in the middle. And I think that will be an interesting uh, conversation if uh, you'd like to join us um, you know on that national webinar and again that uh, that takes place on the 25th 
of January, and that's going to be at 4 o'clock Pacific and 7 o'clock Eastern. And uh, if you happen to be in the southern Oregon area, uh, particularly near Grants Pass, uh, on the 18th I am going to be giving a talk at uh, True Juice and uh, doing a little mini ritual there at 6 o'clock at True Juice on the 18th. And um, I'm actually starting a brand new group in Grants Pass the fourth Wednesday of the month, um, which would be the 24th, um, and it's called Women Weaving the World, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do sharing and visioning and uh, singing and chanting and uh, all sorts of ritual modalities and uh, you know, building sisterhood and community, and uh, you know that's going to be held at Serendipity, uh, which is a healing arts studio in Grants Pass at Fourth uh, and J Streets. And for any uh, any more information on any of this, please do uh, just uh, email me. Uh, you can either do that from my email address. I'll give it again, uh, Karen Tate 108. Uh, at yahoo.com uh, or you can email me through my website which is karentate.net just hit the contact button and fill out the form and uh, that will you know land in my email box and uh, I'm happy to always chat with you um, uh, don't forget uh, commercials are very inexpensive here if you have something you'd like to publicize uh, or if you'd like to uh, suggest uh, a guest for the show uh, I love hearing from listeners, so please do reach out to me. And um, you know what? I think uh, that kind of does it for me today. Uh, so this is uh, my first show of the new year. I'm so glad to be back with you and look forward to uh, looking forward to a great uh, 2024. Uh, so again, thank you. Thank you so much for your listener loyalty, and uh, I look forward to being back with you next Wednesday. All right then, bye for now.